Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding, on air live with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Go to focuscompounding.com uh, to get access to free investment write-ups from Jeff. If you're watching the screen right now, um, we have content going all the way back to 2005. Uh, if you're a frequent listener of the podcast, you've heard the pitch many times. Uh, go to focuscompounding.com just to get access to everything that we're doing. Um, our podcast backlog is there. If you want to learn more about our money management services, because we do manage capital, you could get access to that under the Invest With Us tab. And of course, if you want to stay up to date on things that we push out into the world, uh, the best way to do that is by following me on Twitter at, at Focus Compound. All the information is in the description down below. Uh, so be able to do that. Just click that uh, description and you'll get everything that you would want to get more access to everything that is focused compounding. So today's date, Jeff, is December 27th. This is the last podcast of 2022. And, you know, we're going to take a little bit of a different spin here today um, and really just kind of make it a podcast about reflection from the year 2022. If it takes 20 minutes, great. If it takes 20 hours, um, uh, you know, RIP to me to have to edit that, but also great. So uh, before we jump into it, Jeff, given that this is the last podcast of the year, how was the holidays for you? How was Christmas? People want to hear how Jeff Gannon's Christmas was. Um, Christmas was good. It was cold. Was Santa Claus good to Jeff? Uh, yes, it was good. I got good things. There you go. It was cold. That is correct. Mm -hmm. So I guess it does get cold in Texas. Uh, yes, it was a freak weather event across a lot of the United States. So yeah, I had some um, busted pipes and no bathrooms and things similar to what happened uh, in no. early 2020. Are you kidding me? Uh, no, I'm You're not kidding you, but I have more than one bathroom now, you know, before I only, I lived in an apartment with one bathroom and that went on for two weeks. So that was harder. I had to stay in a hotel that time. This time my, my house still functioned well enough. And after a few days it was fine. Um, yeah. Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask you if you being, you know, the responsible homeowner that you are, I was going to ask you if you covered up the outdoor faucets, you know, yes. that maybe have a hose attached to it. Mm -hmm. I mean, me, I, I, I put a couple towels on it and then I put a plastic bag over it. So you still did that yes. and your pipes burst. Are you kidding me? No. So pipes not inside the house burst. So what happened was um, a system that I never use is that the, uh, the place that I live was originally built to have a golf course that they never built and everything and it was supposed to be an HOA and it never happened and whatever so because of that they had put in a lot of um irrigation stuff right and so a lot of the houses hooked up to like this irrigation system thing so although I never use it and it is insulated with just like a bag um a the pipe outside for the um outside water burst so uh, but the you know bathrooms thing was fixed in like uh, a day or two it was just because it gets down to, um, I think we had, like, it was like 10 degrees or something. But with the wind chill, 
it got down to like negative 10, negative 15 or something. And that's unprotected, that particular thing. So I'll put something up to block the wind better. Um, so it was stuff that was exposed to wind that had it, you know, but crazy. Absolutely crazy. So today is December 27th, as I had said, and I thought this was interesting to rebring up uh, this Barron's cover, the infamous Barron's cover that has actually become pretty famous um, uh, as they were mocking Warren Buffett. That is Barron's, uh, what was published on December 27th, 1999, an article which was the cover that is titled What's Wrong, Warren? And it was an article that was basically talking about how this old washed up guy that likes to drink Coca-Cola and chew Wrigley's chewing gum was out of touch with the market and this new way of investing that is investing in these high growth, high tech internet stocks was the new regime and that Buffett was washed up. So I thought it would be funny to bring it up um, because it's interesting, you know, the saying that history usually is not the same, but it often rhymes. Do you think we kind of went through that the past couple of years, um, you know, with Buffett? Yeah. I mean, before and during COVID, you know, mm -hmm. I think that when he gave his very negative uh, kind of talk at the annual meeting, I think there was a lot of talk of that sort of thing, um, that he was being too pessimistic and you know that he had sold some stock and not bought stock you know in the covid panic and all of that sure same sort of thing because the market was i mean at that point let's see the market was basically actually starting to already go up by the time mm -hmm. of that annual meeting so i think that time is the closest yeah yeah that was when he was basically saying the phone is it ringing off the hook right and he was talking about people in the depression, didn't know they were in a depression until a few years later. Mm -hmm. He was sitting there all by himself in the auditorium and just uh, doing the annual meeting without Munger next to him. Correct. Yeah. Do you remember this Barron's cover? I remember things on CNBC and all of that at this time. I think we've talked a little bit about this. When I was getting involved in investing um, the first few years, there's the perception of Warren Buffett was very, very different than it is and has been for the last 20 years. So he went through different periods. And if you watch specials and things from the earlier nineties in which he was seen as, you know, being a, around the time of, um, you know, he, he became super famous probably around the time of like, um, uh, the, um, uh, what was the book that, um, was the first one not the Warren Buffett portfolio, but the other one? Um, that one was a uh, the Warren Buffett way. Warren Buffett way. Thank you. That was like a huge best-selling kind of thing. Uh, I mean, investing books aren't normally like that, and so that was really big. And he had done, uh, you know, there have been Solomon, there have been the uh, Cap Cities, and all that. So that's sort of like until Cap Cities is not that famous with the general public. Um, Cap Cities taking over ABC, and so for about ten years or something, they are capped off by the publication of that book. He was just this, like, that was the Oracle of Omaha kind of thing. And you can see interviews from that time that kind of treat him more that way. That he's it's about him being a, um, that he's not in New York. How does he do this? And he's a big investor in media things and all that. Um, in the late 90s, he was already super famous, right, because of that. And so then it was, how is that the most successful investor ever? 
um, so not successful when everyone is making money, right? I mean, it's kind of like the meme stock thing. People who just started investing were making huge amounts of money, sometimes uh, huge returns, sometimes a lot bigger than the um, investment managers were making. You know, it's kind of like when we talked about um, some different mutual funds where I said, you know, if a mutual fund goes up 100% in a year, because they're pretty diversified, you know, um, it's not likely that, you know, th those don't usually end well, right? And that's the kind of thing that was happening in people's personal portfolios, you know, with IPOs. But I mean, Buffett doesn't do IPOs, and that whole IPO thing was sort of rigged in those days, especially to make sure there was a big pop on the initial day. It was really from about the time of the Netscape IPO on is when I kind of think of the dot-com bubble sort of in the sense of whatever prices were, the mania with um, it going on with just individual investors and all of that coming into it in a big way. Um, and IPOs especially uh, being a really big thing that you were supposed to get in on and everything. And, um, you know, this is the era of like Jim Cramer um, and momentum stocks and things like that um, of, uh, you know, those are the kinds of things that people were writing articles and, and all of that. And, um, and Barron's is actually of the major publications, one of the more contrarian, more value oriented really than of any of them probably. Why do you think these manias continue to happen? I mean, do you think the professionals that are involved in the mania that, you know, market the mania that quote unquote pump the mania, do you think they understand the game that they're playing? I mean, it just seems like stuff like this always comes up every few years in financial markets. Yeah. I mean, it's a combination of different interests for each of the groups doing it, right? What's wrong, Warren, whether that's a good article or not in terms of how it's remembered, probably gets um interest right it gets talked mm -hmm. about people read about it um so tearing down or uh, a big famous figure using the name of a famous figure then um doing it in a surprising way and stuff like that you know works for the media so the media focuses on those things um so i don't think they're necessarily interested in pumping up a mania or not but you know i think they're okay with pumping up ftx um and they're also okay with covering the the downfall and stuff. I mean, they're they're just doing it for the entertainment value, for the for the news mm -hmm. value of it, of selling things and clicks and stuff. So that's the media's interest in it. Uh, other people's interest in it is what gets flows. And so when we talk about like investment managers, the problem that they have is um, even ones that were successful value investors in the last years of the '90s, their funds shrank even when they they were actually getting pretty good returns. Um, cause a couple of things were happening. One relative returns were sometimes poor for some of them. Right. So that hurts you, but a lot of them weren't down until the very end of the mania. Um, and then two, the flows were even more extreme than the returns, right? So people were chasing returns and stuff, but even more extreme than that, they were pushing into the tech stuff and away from other things that were even other things that were working pretty well. So, uh, that's a really big part of it. I mean, it's a thing when we talk about ARC innovation and all that, um, even if it's down a lot over time, sometimes it still has a surprisingly high AUM, right? Compared to other mm -hmm. things which have exactly, you know, which ha would have a similar track record over a certain period of time or something. So having a lot of publicity, a lot of notoriety, um, whether it's positive or negative, just getting you a lot of press does help with um, getting a lot of assets. Um, and that's how you, you make the money. And especially then, because we're not talking about hedge funds and stuff. 
you know, we're talking about people who are making money on the management fees and um, more so than that, even for the people bringing them the money and everything and for the organizations that are backing them. It's more about even just bringing in the, the money in the first place, right? That's more what the business was like back then. So like um, Third Avenue, uh, you know, like, yeah, like Third Avenue value and, and things like that, you know, the, the, um, those sorts of, th- for, uh, what was it? First Eagle, those things, you know, that kind of stuff is the thing that has like really bad problems at this time in terms of just like, no matter what your performance is like, you can't get, uh, your, your fund is shrinking and you're in trouble. It's interesting when you talk about Buffett and like his level of fame. I mean, if you watch the Becoming Warren Buffett movie and especially like the outtakes when all of his kids sat down and had a Q&A for a few hours that is available on YouTube, I believe all of his children uh, had said that, you know, when they were growing up, his father was not a famous guy. Uh, Certainly, you know, um, compared to the present and you had just mentioned that as well. I mean, for people that maybe weren't focusing on investing in, uh, you know, the late 90s, or maybe for somebody that uh, was born in 1996 or thereabout, mm-hmm. um, would you say, like, would you compare his level of fame back in the late 90s to, like, you know, maybe like somebody like Munger today, where if you're in the industry, you're very familiar with who he is. But if you're outside of the industry, maybe you're not as familiar, or maybe these other hedge fund managers like Ackman, who again, in the industry, you're familiar, maybe some other people, because, you know, he does more activist stuff or whatever, but like outside of the industry, you're not as familiar. How would you compare it? Um, But this is, you know, early, early days of the internet. So the internet was not a source for news and for getting people famous and everything. So... A lot of niche stuff didn't get that much coverage. It's through broadcast networks and things like that. Um, so a few people were very famous. And Buffett, once that book was written and everything, was definitely very famous uh, with the general public. He'd already been well, very well known by investment people and was really well known by people who knew media things, right? Um, so... I mean, business people knew who he was, especially in publishing and in media and broadcasting, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so it talked about that way. But I think the book changed everything. And um, But there also was a much bigger aspect to it of um, the simplicity of it and that he was in Omaha and all that. Because remember, uh, it, everything that we have now about the biography stuff, really, what is American Capitalist? When's it published? Like 90, mid-90s, 94? 695 I don't remember the but it runs through about that time um so that kind 1995. of 1995 okay so that and and that's not as big as like the Warren Buffett uh, way or anything like that but I just mean all of our information about his background and his biography and stuff is all from that and from the snowball right mm-hmm. so it really was about um and when was Warren Buffett way published 1994 okay so yeah I'd you know but like, but you know, that's, that's kind of, I would say the height of his fame in terms of, mm-hmm. or the height of uh, adulation of everyone being, you know, that Buffett's the greatest and stuff was from, let's say 1994 to, you know, three or four years later, maybe four years later when the uh, dot-com boom is in enough of a period. Um, you know, his, his record through, even as the stock record and stuff through like, and for Berkshire through 96, 97, you know, to about the time of the Gen Re deal or something. Um, from the Genry deal on, I think is only when there's more negative 
uh, press about it usually. Um, so, I mean, his record was still, I mean, his stock investing record was amazing in the 80s and 90s, and so was it for, for the first half of the 90s. And it was that way for uh, Berkshire stock too. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, but that's kind of, I think before those books came out and stuff, so let's say before the mid 90s, he's much less well-known person, yeah. So obviously you've studied Buffett for the majority of your investing career. Not only that, but you've also been learning in public, investing in public. You've spoken with hundreds or thousands of investors over the years. So I'm just curious when you have somebody like Buffett, where he's been in, you know, the public, or there's a ton of information on the way that he invests, the way that he thinks, you know, you have the Buffett FAQ, you have all of the annual meeting archived videos. Why don't more people emulate the way that he invests? And I know there's a famous quote, which I can't verify that Jeff Bezos basically asked him the same thing. And Buffett's answer was because nobody wants to get rich slowly. So I'm kind of curious to hear your take on that. What is it? Is it like the whole nature versus nurture thing? Is it a personality thing? Is it the difference of personalities, right? Monish Pabrai has said that Munger is the type of person that always needs to be doing something where Buffett isn't that type of individual. I mean, what is it from your point of view? Yeah, I think a lot of that is true. Um, Buffett is unique in that he structured things from very early on so that he wasn't like other professional investment managers. Um, I think there's a reason why Peter Lynch, who we can see up there, uh, quit so quickly. It got too big and he was too much of a traditional professional money manager that way, just to be a giant mutual fund. Uh, the kind of life that he was living and that Buffett lives of, you know, uh, maniacal sort of, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, just absolute focus on what he's doing through all those years of investing is something that people, unless you've read those biographies, probably don't appreciate that he probably spent all day reading for stu- uh, stuff, uh, investing material, and then came home and read a bunch and was probably thinking about it at all times and everything. Peter Lynch was probably visiting companies and talking to companies and things all the time. Um, that was, you know, they they don't have, you know, working hours and stuff like that and the separation between their life uh, outside of work and their work. Their work is their life, and that's, you know, kind of the thing that they're grown like a snowball over that entire period. Um, so... I mean, when he ran the partnership, he didn't tell them what they're invested in. So uh, people overlook that, but not knowing what you're invested in makes it much easier if you have a really honest person like Warren Buffett doing it as uh, um, for better results. Um, and the other thing is that a few aspects of how someone invests often get blown out of proportion in people's minds and become sort of like catchphrases or something of what they imagine them to be like so it becomes like a cartoon thing right so like peter lynch if you asked the general public at the time that he was most famous or the general investing public i should say people who um would you know of that time would the people would watch like wall street week or something right with the rekaiser you know that's the closest to like the people who would listen to our podcast and things like that right that was about the extent of it back then um so those kinds of people who were kind of fans of finance stuff right at least would have said uh, he says, buy what you know, buy what you like, right? Like if you eat at McDonald's, buy McDonald's, buy those things, right? And he owns like 
2,000 stocks or something. He owns everything, a little bit of everything, right? Those are the only things that they know. And he manages like a giant fund and has an incredible record. But that's it. They, you know, if you read the books and everything, he talks about how he really made the returns and what misconceptions people had and everything. Uh, it's very different. And Warren Buffett, I think, is the same way, where I think there are certain misconceptions of his record. And especially from the time of like the 90s, and the Warren Buffett way and everything, it becomes this really big misconception that he sort of just like buys Coke or something like that, right? That became like the investment that everyone talked about, that that was, you know, how he made all his money was from that sort of thing. Um, and do you think he talks about that reason the most just because it's something that everybody could understand on a very basic level? Maybe I'm not sure that he does talk about it the most. It gets written up by the most, talked about the most. But if you listen to his annual meetings, if you listen to his interviews and stuff, I think he says some pretty intelligent things that don't get picked up as much in the press about what he's doing. He talked plenty about mm -hmm. arbitrage. People didn't talk about how to arbitrage like Warren Buffett, but he wrote about it extensively in his shareholder letters. He talked a lot about accounting things and how they might hide stuff and how it could be look better than it was or worse than it was. Um, he talked about inflation and all that. I think that gets picked up with Coca-Cola and all those things about how to beat inflation. But um, there was a lot of that that I don't think um, gets covered as much. And then also the way that the compounding works, having a very high rate of compounding for a fairly long period of time early on, especially if it's consistent, um, has a really big effect on the record over the full period of time. So people do underestimate how important the record is when looking at the early days, you know, the, the night, the period covered in, um, capital allocation, the book, right. Um, for Berkshire and also for Buffett's own wealth, how much of it was driven by how long he performed well with a fund because he had a fund for about the time that the same sort of time that Peter Lynch's career was running a fund. And, uh, you know, Buffett's was a, was a hedge fund, um, and really small, but that was a really important part of it. And, only in the last few years did it have meaningful um, investments that were at all like the investments he made in other uh, that he'd become famous for later, you know, with the American Express and Disney and those sorts of things. Um, so I think sometimes, you know, any of these things, they, they sort of gets focused on a few things that they said or whatever. You know, if I said Pabrai or something, everyone would say, he uh, you know, heads I win, tails I don't lose too much or whatever, you know. Um, yeah. So there's a point. Yeah. Um, and so certain ones are, they just are remembered as activists or raiders or whatever. And part of their career, they made, may have made a lot of money from that part of their career. They may have made money from a different way. You kind of have to read the biographies and kind of work it out to figure out how they really did in things. Um, you know, there was a period where everyone was saying he was getting these, um, special deals and stuff, you know, and he got a lot of negative press for that at the time of the preferred stock deals and all of that. Um, that happened a little bit after the financial crisis, people saying the same thing, but it happened a lot then when he couldn't find things to invest in. And you had some negative comments from people about um, the different preferred stock deals that he did with um, Solomon and Champion and, uh, and US Air, um, which were, you know, a very mixed bag. And then, you know, Gillette and American Express, which he could have just invested in directly and gotten really good results. So, um, I mean, just invest the way that other investors would in the common stock in the open market. So... Uh, you know, and it, like people were saying that as if that's where his record came from, but his record didn't come from any sort of special deals like that at all. In fact, the special deals sort of stuff wasn't particularly good returns and not a great use of money compared to other things that he did. 
Um, but you know, like he's explained what his record was in arbitrage. He, I mean, he gave an estimate of what it was, you know, going back in the records and looking at it and figuring out what it was on levered and everything. Well, that's a really good record. I mean, if he did that his whole career, he would have a record that would beat the vast majority of, uh, investment managers and would be a pretty good thing for an investment bank to have someone running that kind of business for them. So he's upfront about that. It just not as talked about and as famous. Why do you think that is? Um, well, one, as we know from doing this podcast, the allure of the hundred bagger, the buying and holding forever and making a lot of money on a single stock. Here's the day you buy it and then you hold it. This is how much you would have made in this one stock from this one idea and anyone could have seen it, uh, is really, really big, right? So there are some people who will talk to me about net nets or arbitrage things or whatever, but that's not ever going to be as exciting to people, um, as other ways of investing. So I think that is part of it. And then the other thing is um, you have to kind of create a consistent picture of the person when you're covering them in the media and stuff. So you kind of get rid of a bunch of things and you focus only on those few things. Um, and so there was always played up a lot of things about his background in Omaha and stuff, you know. And some of that stuff is silly, right? Like the corn-fed capitalists and all that. We, we've been to Omaha. Omaha's a city. He grew up in... Uh, uh, a city his and his dad in politics and stuff. He grew up in Washington, D.C. too, also a big city that way. Um, he had, went to school in New York and worked in New York with the some of the best-known people in Wall Street at, at the time um, and frequently visited there all the time and uh, obviously went to school originally at, you know, uh, one of the better um, business schools in the country and, and very much... Um, connected to all sorts of people there other than, you know, Columbia. I mean, if you think about it, you know, where he went for all the schools that he went to, although he, you know, went to Nebraska then, um, where, you know, where you, anyone would go for those sorts of things. So playing up the thing about Nebraska is a thing because of how the news coverage, right? So the people covering him in the news are either from New York, Washington, DC, or LA, right? Those people are talking to him and covering him. So their image of what Nebraska is or what that, you know, upbringing that he had or whatever, I think is pretty different from, um, you know, the reality. So mm -hmm. he did not spend any time on a farm. He doesn't know anything about farming. He, not a person who would be in a rural area ever. Um, so, you know, but that becomes part of it, even if that's not, uh, you know, really true. Mm -hmm. I mean, my perception of Omaha, I mean, and I'm from the Midwest, right? I'm from a town that is basically just cornfields, rural area. My perception of Omaha is it's almost like the field of dreams in real life. I mean, it really is surrounded by cornfields. And then you have a very pretty, clean, small-ish city that is just seems like it's like the field of dreams, just like in the middle of a cornfield. But I, I do understand the whole like, um, yeah, I think it's like fun for people or it's appealing to people. If you're a reporter reporting on it, it kind of is clickbaity in a way. I mean, even we talked about this headline, right? Like what's wrong, Warren? That's a very clickbaity article or title to an article where you're just going to basically trash him and get a, a lot of clicks, you know, or I guess in this case views. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So, so the period that you're talking about though, I, that is what I remember is m mainly coverage of that kind of thing that his record was so good. How is it that it's not good right now? Um, uh -huh. yeah. And then, and so, but, I, you know, that's mainly what I remember him being talked about and stuff is someone who might be past his time, older and all of that. Um, and in fact, there was more focus on his age and everything then. So, 
Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, it's like that old quote about like 99% of his net worth has come after his 50th birthday. And here he is, uh, turning 70 in 2000, the article says, and it just shows really like how long he's been doing this. And most people probably would have hopped off the train a long time ago, especially when, if you're worth, I don't know, a few hundred million or half a billion dollars by the time you're 50 years old, that's probably the thing about Buffett is that is so different from other people is just, he has kept at it for so many decades. Yeah. And I think the big thing about that is how he kind of did that from the start how he organized things so that he could do that without a mm. point where he'd have to kind of retire and stuff. I mean, he closed up the fund. He he didn't necessarily think that he was going to be investing other people's money all the time. Um, and there were some points in which maybe he wouldn't have been doing that. I don't know that he, you know, if he had had a background that was more, if he had taken over Graham Newman, you know, when Graham left, uh, I don't think he'd still be investing today and in, and. In, uh, all of that, um, we wouldn't know about him the same way, or, you know, he would have had a much shorter career. Um, you know, so I think that's a really big part of it too, is the way that he did it, how individually he did it, um, so that he could do it for the long run. But that's something, you know, that we know from the biographies, how much of kind of an obsession of that, that is of him, of that he, how much he disliked discontinuity, you know? And so he'd like to set up vehicles and things that in theory could just keep going on. Um, without having an endpoint in mind for that, you know, and that's harder when you, you know, if you're running an open and mutual fund or something, that was never going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. So we could hit on the market as we come into uh, the last few days of 2022. SP 500 looks like we're going to end up uh, somewhere around down 20% year to date, 10 year yield at 3.86 percent crude oil around eighty dollars and natural gas five dollars and eighteen cents and you know as we review the year i was thinking jeff what will i remember 2022 uh the most for right how i remember 2022 the most and you know i really am gonna in my head kind of think about it as being like the death of speculation so gone are the days of million dollar JPEGs selling. Gone are the days you don't are probably familiar with this, but everybody listening is of like the fire eyes on Twitter and the NFTs as the profile pictures. Gone are the days of the SPACs. Uh, gone are the days of the meme stocks, right? AMC, I was looking today, down 85% year to date. Not only that, but we've talked about a lot on this podcast, how much they diluted uh, the company through uh COVID as well GameStop down 53 percent year to date um i'll remember facebook or what was facebook before they changed their name to meta yep. uh, down 65 percent year to date i think that was actually the top in uh meta i remember obviously the russian and ukraine war and the sanctions that were put on russia i remember uh inflation hitting a 40-year high of 9.1% in July. And then of course, you know, the rate hikes that have come with those hot inflation prints uh, to try to tame the beast and put the genie back in the bottle. I'll remember uh, US mortgage rates going above 7% for the first time in 20 years. And then I will remember Elon Musk buying Twitter. And I'm kind of curious, Jeff, to hear, I know I just rattled off a bunch of really the highlights uh, 
mm-hmm. but I do think there's been a paradigm shift and I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are as to how you will remember 2022. Well, in terms of the general stuff, you know, that's at, yeah, that's happening, not anything specific to our business and investing that way in our stuff, but just in general. Um, I think I remember the S&P 500 down 20%. Uh, mm-hmm. The increase in short-term interest rates, um, the speed of it, and, you know, money supply growth, you know, deposits and things like that going to basically negative, if not, you know, completely flat. Um, those things rarely ever happen, right? There's not a lot of calendar years down 20% in the S&P. They're, most people are not used to seeing money supply growth of nothing or negative. Um, and no one's ever seen, um, uh, with the exception of a few, well, from levels that were low, no one's ever seen short-term rates rise this fast. Um, they've risen this fast if they were already extremely high for a brief period, but basically no one's ever seen and going from very low rates to, um, to high ones, you know? So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so, you know, but, but basically to me, it's just like, you know, the tightening of financial conditions is a move from completely loose to tight. Um, and that's a lot of what you're talking about with the, the manias and, and speculations and all that is, you know, things are quoted in money. So, um, if you're, you know, growing it by a lot, that's having an effect on everything, whether it's real estate stocks, different weird collectible things and made up tokens and whatever. Um, but anything that you say, this is in some sense scarce, you can't print this, this isn't money. Um, and then, you know, if it, we can see what happens if money didn't grow, you know, if, if money didn't grow from year to year, what was out there, th- those things wouldn't be happening, you know, and the it would feel like a completely different world. So, um, yeah. More on, you know, like uh, excess being taken out of the market, liquidity being taken out of the market, uh, long dated securities coming back down to earth. I'm curious. I mean, so here we are, we could talk about everyone's favorite stock to, uh, uh, you know, talk about these sort of things. And that's Tesla. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's down 11% today. We are around a hundred dollars a share. It's currently trading at $109 per share. I don't know what it's doing since it's closed. Is this a margin call happening right now in, you know, real time? Um, well, I don't think that there's, I mean, that there's literally much margin and stuff. I don't think that's having much of any effect on anything. Um, I think that, I mean, we can go to QuickFS to look at some of these things, but I've talked before that the easiest way to tell, you know, speculation or if there's unusual amounts of speculation stuff is by comparing things that give you an immediate yield or a yield that's calculable to things that you can't price. And what happens is that when you have two things that should, in theory, be very similar two assets or something or two um, uh, things that would give you cash flows over time um, that you're trying to value, come up with intrinsic value for, if one of them goes to the moon and it's one that's very hard to value and one that has a more steady value to it in terms of the flows off of it or in terms of some book value number or whatever, um, that's kind of the what speculation is. And the divergence of Tesla versus other automakers is extremely indicative of uh, speculation, uh, of too high a level of speculation. And 
is consistent with the idea that there was a lot of money and a lot of you know credit creation and stuff like that, a lot of uh, wealth effects that people were feeling um, for the last five years or so, right? There was a some parts where it changed and then came back in a big way, but basically that that it got to crazy levels in that, and you know. Um, Tesla after huge declines like this, you know, the rest of the worldwide auto industry all put together, maybe on an enterprise value basis, depending on how you calculate it, might be a bit bigger than Tesla on a market value basis. I don't think it is, depending on where exactly we are today and everything. So Tesla had to fall more than 50% to get to levels that are basically all the other, you know, in theory, you could buy all the other automakers for. Um, So... And we see that in a lot of different ones where you compare two stocks in the same um, industry. Even when we talk about things like movie theaters, right? Um, Cinemark always made more money than AMC, even though AMC is the biggest. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, still is valued at lower than AMC, I believe, um, even though uh, you know its history of the last ten years, whatever, has more you know operating profit and stuff. So that's to some extent because one of those seems like it's being valued as volatile as it is and stuff as a stock, right? Cinemark and, you know, Marcus and any other theaters and stuff. And AMC is a special category of stock, right? It's not really a stock anymore or it wasn't a stock. No one's looking at that. And even analysts are saying we can't use price targets and things that base it on the actual business. We have to guess about all this other stuff. So that those kinds of things, right? And, um, that's a lot of what you see, right, with Tesla. But you've also seen with a bunch of other stocks, and people try to come up with individual explanations for it. What I mean, Disney. I think Disney will have its worst year, right, in in since seventy four, probably. I mean, around that time was really bad for Disney, the seventy three seventy four period. So I don't remember exactly how much it was down, but that would have been the last kind of catastrophic collapse in the stock price. Any other come to mind? Well, most of the media things are down a lot. I mean, what's Netflix? What's happened with Netflix in the last year? Um, what's happened with Meta, which is, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the whole fan crew has basically gone whopped. Yeah. And uh, like take tech, for instance, and what tech means. We think of like, you know, Netflix and these things as being tech. Uh, IBM is like flat or up for the year or something. And it's actually more of a tech company than any of these companies, right? But what that means is something else. It's not a growth company. It's not, uh, you know, a big hot stock or anything like that. So we mean something else when we say tech. I mean, obviously, IBM is more of a tech company than Tesla or Netflix. We've we've redefined what that means, you know. Um, and it is in each period redefined as what kind of hot stocks of that period are. Um, and that's usually what we mean when we say like tech and, and growth and all that stuff is not just that it grows a lot or that it actually has technology things, but that it's in this category they're talking about, about the, the speculative aspect to it, that they're going to make a lot of money in the future, new ways of doing things, you know, different business models, that kind of stuff. Got it. So we recorded 43 podcasts in 2022. Now, to be fair, we did shift from doing a few a week to doing one long pod a week. So I'm kind of curious, Jeff, to hear if any podcasts for you stick out um, and really like, what are your favorite podcasts that we do? Is it when we do like Q and A's? Is it when we just look at stocks all the time? Is it when we just talk generally about things? What are your favorite type of uh, episodes that we record? 
well, my, so, you know, I don't listen to them again, usually. Um, that would be very rare and doing it just for the purpose of getting some information for something. So I think I listened to the last one from last year, I said, to get a feel for what we talked about at the end of last year, because it, you know, otherwise I wouldn't have an idea of, uh, what we were actually saying back then and how much things have changed, right? Um, your memory won't serve you right that way. So, um, with the new format stuff, no, I don't remember particular episodes that well. Um, the things that I like best doing are uh, the ones where I feel like we're talking about some really useful idea or deconstructing something in a way that presents it in a new way to people that I think they can take and use. Um, and so like when we talked about confidence things, you know, I don't know if we did mm -hmm. the, the best job with that or, or whatever. That was the plan to do that. It, well, it wasn't the plan to do that because we don't plan ahead for that. Yeah. <laughs> but that kind of thing, if we can get that idea through, if I could express that idea well, would be really useful, you know, because it's one thing I say all the time that this kind of investor Buffett is. And I think a lot of misperceptions about him are that way, um, that they don't come from a place of understanding how he thinks about probabilities and high confidence in things. And why would he buy this? Activision thing as an arbitrage and why would he do this, you know, and all of that. Um, so talking about ideas like that, I think are really good. The podcast we've done in the past, you know, free cash flow plus growth, what it takes to be a hundred bagger, um, things like that. Um, and then, or the ones that we did, you know, with the talking about, you know, the different parts of capital allocation, you know, particular investments that people made and stuff like that. So things to try to bring something new or different way of thinking about it for people. And then actually bringing useful ideas, interesting ideas. And this is dangerous because when I say this, I just mean that this stock is interesting. I don't mean you should go out and buy this, which I, I want to make that uh, distinction clear. But there's something interesting going on here. Pay attention to this. Uh, study it for yourself or something because we have some people who are you know active investors and and will really dig into these things themselves and um they may if it wasn't for this podcast i don't know if they would be aware of you know alco or something right and so that, that could who knows but that stock could keep going down things could keep happening whatever it could be a situation that otherwise they wouldn't be thinking about or looking at or whatever so those kinds of things are the ones uh so bringing ideas of less covered stocks or stocks people wouldn't be looking at not even less covered but just like you might not be thinking about this or not talking about it um and it's an interesting situation the arbitrage ones you know even though i know that's not a favorite of people's um saying you know look here's hunter douglas and what the situation might be in that here's cambria here's uh, activision here's whatever you know um twitter which went through uh so you know and just talking about that in real time to people and then they can go back and listen and you know or remember um that you know oh they lost money on this deal or this deal worked out this way and why and everything instead of like what i don't want to do is here's the formula for how you do arbitrage or something which is what everyone puts up on youtube or on uh websites or whatever is like you know take like ben graham's formula or something and here's how you're supposed to plug it in or here's how you're supposed to do a dcf or something instead take a real situation and show you the good parts and bad parts and what are the risks and the the um uh, opportunities that there might be in it of how things could work out. Cause like a lot of times when I talk to people, it's funny because I'll talk a lot about something like, a, you know, if they know we own some stock or something, I'll be like, Oh, it sounds like you're much more pessimistic on it. Like you don't like it as much as stuff. And I say, no, this is how I talk about stocks. You know, I mean, if we own something, I think it's going to go up a ton. You know, when we talked about the FICO thing, I said, look, I would have thought it was going to be higher. I mean, the FICO went up whatever, 20 times in 10 years or something. But some of the things I would have predicted on the day I bought it turned out to be wrong. It underperformed some of those things. And so you have to be realistic about what things you would have expected, what really happened, and um, 
I think that's useful to do that. So I definitely like talking about specific things. Stocks that I think are interesting for people to look at and um, to think seriously about trying to figure out, right? And especially if it directs them to find things on their own and really study stocks that aren't being as, um, just that aren't such a superficial coverage or something like that, you know? I mean, as much as we could talk about you know, Disney things or whatever, it will turn into being a talk about the overall industry of the different things that it's in, right? Because it's a big thing that's exposed to all of that. So I feel like whenever we talk about any of those things, you know, of course it goes into those stuff, right? And the same thing when we talk about um, banks or something, people ask like, well, what about the future of it with the fintech things? Maybe they'll ask about that less now because some of those things are, are down a little bit more stocks. But, you know, well, this is this future proof and stuff of the future. And, and you know, to me, that's not like, and they ask that about the car dealers too, right? We talk about like Virtu or something. You know, those aren't the biggest issues that actually face those companies as stocks of whether the stock will perform or not. Like the fact that interest rates were going up so fast since whatever and the match of the liabilities and the assets and you try to point people to that kind of thing. Because I think about banking even until the second half of this year, most questions were more about like the future of it and like how I'm, you know, well, but I use PayPal and stuff. And so what, you know, what, how do these really work? And there are these things that send me stuff asking, you know, saying here's, you can get a mortgage loan and whatever, you know, so how does this banking stuff work and how will it work in the future if we're all using these, um, you know, new things that, and, you know, buy now, pay later and all that stuff. Will there be anything left for banking that way? As opposed to like, you know, well, what, it, you know, the difference that it makes if you're, able to uh, borrow and stuff overnight at like nothing versus having to pay 4% or something, you know, which is huge. So uh, I like to get into those specific things. And we've done ones with specific banks or whatever, where we try to like take that apart of what things matter on uh, and, you know, quick mm -hmm. FS things. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And maybe we could do more of that in the new year, especially because in past episodes or past, you know, times when we, would go over some of these things if we were trying to keep to like 30 or 40 minutes mm -hmm. perhaps maybe we like rushed through it right um and not only that but like the energy that would go into i don't know if this so much is like on your end i'm just speaking for myself but like mm -hmm. the energy of like recording three episodes i right. think to keep the energy up it's just honestly easier to do like one intro one uh outro and just one show even if it's two hours opposed to if we just did you know three podcasts when we record we batch record and then i upload you know slice cut whatever upload three different episodes i feel like it's just much more like i don't know easier to produce a good show if you're going to do one longer format so you know perhaps we could revisit things like that in the new year just because we are recording longer and i mean just so i understand too right like we've spoken about on the podcast the whole six flag situation right that's a situation in the public markets right now that's a very interesting thing that yes. i don't know if a lot of people are paying attention to that you would direct people to pay attention to that doesn't mean we're buying the stock that doesn't Correct. mean we own it or anything like that but it's just a good lesson or learning situation that's currently going on in the market Right. Absolutely. And that, even though that's a very heavily traded stock and I'm sure hedge funds and whatever things buy and sell it all the time and whatever, like we're talking about with Haynes brands, I don't know that like a lot of people listening to the the podcast would necessarily be thinking a lot about Six Flags. Um, they might even not be thinking a lot about something like Haynes brands, even though we showed that that's an insanely, uh, uh, a huge turnover and that's, uh, you know, um, or even, you know, when we talk about you know, Cinemark, 
which again is like it's not a huge stock or something and these are all you know mid-sized sort of things but they trade huge amounts of volume and everything you could get in and out of them instantly um and so they should be well uh, understood and well looked at and stuff but you know uh there's probably plenty of people who haven't looked at them before yeah so even those sorts of things I, I like to do. And I would also like to do more things, I guess, where maybe we t even if we talk about things that are bigger stocks or whatever, but are more representative of the kinds of things that I would tell people to, to look at, right? These are the kinds of businesses that when we talk about the confidence thing and everything, um, these are the kinds of businesses that Buffett would look at, that I would look at or whatever, if you were restricted into that size thing. So I'm saying Buffett because, you know, he has to invest in huge, huge stocks, but you know, I'm not going to buy a stock that is, you know, a $20 billion market cap or $120 billion market cap. But there are some of them that are a lot more uh, predictable and whatever than others, right? And so sometimes it just sounds like I'm saying, well, I don't like Micron or something, but that's not what I mean. What I mean is that there's to try to get that there's a very big difference between that and well, like here, like um, Taiwan Semiconductor, right? Which is TSMC, probably the ticker or something like that. Uh, maybe it is. Let's see. Well, um, let's see. Pumps up through here. Uh, TSM. Got it. Got it. TSM. Okay. Um, yeah, TSM. So here's a stock that, you know, presumably Buffett bought. We don't know that. Berkshire bought it in the last, uh, you know, recently. Uh, based on the size of the company and the size of the buy and the time that it is and the company that it is i don't know enough about um weschler and combs to know like specifically if they would buy something like this but it totally seems like the kind of thing that buffett would buy um so this is the kind of thing in which you might have high confidence and stuff if you understood the business it's not a business that i understand well it has some possible geopolitical risk although you know to the extent it has geopolitical risk that means that the world has it um because you know obviously if you, it, it completely um, end of the supply for, um, a company like this, then, you know, the world is in short supply of stuff, but, um, it's a company that you can see that has margins, um, and the, the gross margins and the operating margins, which you can see here and, um, all of that, that are very high. And, but very, very stable. Like when I talk about, especially when you talk about something like I talk about the coefficient of variation or something, because these margins are so high, gross profit margin near 50%, sometimes operating profit near 40%, sometimes um, the fact that they're varying by so little in absolute terms means that on a relative basis, they're varying by even less than that. And so that's something that I've always stressed that way. And actually, if you look at the pure numbers here, they look the thing that you probably will stand out or might stand out to you or something. The thing that stands out to me, if I didn't see the name of this company, right, is the railroads. It looks exactly like a railroad. Now, it doesn't look like a... It does not look like a semiconductor. Right. It doesn't look like a railroad in terms of the asset growth and the revenue and stuff today. But what it looks so much like in terms of the gross profit level, the operating profit level, the spread between them, um, and uh, the, the very slow turns. So you'll see here, for instance, you can immediately see that... Um, the 10-year median margin for like pre-tax income um, is 40%, and yet the return on invested capital is about half of that. So the turns have to be really, really slow for that to be happening. You can also see that in that the free cash flow is half of the um, 
pre-tax numbers that we see there. So what that means, again, is that you're reinvesting huge amounts, right? And so the actual level of returns is, is fairly low. It looks to me like this is a business that maybe returns 20% a year. And it's not all in cash and stuff right away as it's growing, so who knows? But that creates a lot of value. Someone like Buffett looks at that and says, okay, 15 or 20%, even 15% you can live with. Um, if you're growing at high rates, is doing pretty well. And what we talked about in terms of that... Um, the the Todd Combs um, idea mm -hmm. of those three uh, criteria that we talked about, right? P of thirteen or less, right? Well, look here. Yeah, you know, Buffett's was fifteen or less. Your, fifteen you or less. Said your spin was thirteen, but you yeah. said yeah. your spin was thirteen or less. That's right. how you've always it, is about. saying fifteen. You know, what is at fifteen basically? Mm -hmm. And so, looking forward a year, whatever you'd say, you know, because you had a, if it's a forward number, this thing's at twelve, uh, at thirteen, going back. Uh, uh, trailing now. So going forward, 15 for a growing company over time sounds very possible. The 10 year number in terms of revenue is 15%. How many years have they grown less than like say 7% or something, which is Buffett's the kind of target they talked about. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, when, and when you use that framework, Jeff, I mean, is that the type of framework that would ever put up Buffett 1.0 type numbers? Or is that more so the Buffett that has to deploy so much capital where he can't find those more off the bean path type of investments. I mean, are you going to put up high double digit numbers following that framework? I mean, if you're paying 15 times PE for a company, it's growing 7%. A lot of that kind of sounds like the market to me. Yeah. Um, this is not American Express when he bought it in, in the 60s or Washington Post when he bought it in the 70s or Seas Candy, right? It's also not Mid-Continent Tab Car Company. It's a lot like all of those except for a few. Most of the things we're talking about are actually fine price is fine that way. The growth levels are fine and stuff. There's a few problems here. One, the company's too large. Two, it, it doesn't turn its capital as fast as those other things. And three, the margins aren't going to improve the way that those did. So, but it could be if you discovered Taiwan Semiconductor in 2002 or something, like this company was a lot smaller 20 years ago. So actually, I don't know what the returns in the stock have been for 20 years because the price could have been really high or something, you know, 20 years ago. But it's not that far from, but but yeah, it is the kind of company that could give you really great returns for 20 years, probably, if you had discovered back then. It's too big now, obviously, to do that for you. Just because in terms of like the world uh, size of it, and also because it's probably in things that, although I know that I'm sure there's people who have amazing expectations that this will grow faster in the future than it's been in the past. So it's probably a sector that will grow slower in the future than in the past, uh, just because of how much um, saturation there is in, in terms of stuff as the one was before. So that's a period of incredible growth for the industry, but it's the kind of thing that probably Buffett would look at or whatever. And uh, yeah, actually all of those are fine. Like uh, in terms of having high returns, you might be surprised. The issues that I see as a potential problem here uh, is primarily margin and free cash flow, uh, particularly as being generating it in cash terms, right? So if the 10-year median free cash flow margin is like 20% and you're turning like half, then your actual ability to generate free cash flow um, in terms of relative to your equity is not that high. So you're basically getting, if it was at a price to book of one, let's say, it's at four and a half. But if it was a price to book of one, you'd really only be generating, if, if you're using a borrowed money, you'd really only be generating about a 10% or so return in cash each year that you could buy back your stock, pay a dividend and whatever. And then the other 10% or so has to go, of, of the cash that you have, um, that would have to go um, 
into uh, reinvestment. Now I'm saying it as like 10 and 20, which might be confusing, but why I'm saying 10 and 20 on a margin basis, it's 20% free cash flow margin and 20% margin that you're reinvesting, right? But on a turn basis, a so relative to your capital, it's actually going to be less than that because that's something people need to keep in mind. Um, so it looks really, really good though in the same way as like a railroad in that it has sort of maximum efficiency. What it seems to be looking like if you didn't know anything about the business is it has the maximum of level of scale possible, which would make doing this business on a smaller scale nearly impossible. Because, and Apple actually has a lot of similarities to this too. Um, Apple's a much better business, uh, although I'm sure it'll grow less in the future, or I would assume it would grow less in the future. But um, this is a company that doesn't even have like 50% margins quite on average, um, and yet is able to have free cash flow margins of like 20%. And pre-tax operating margins like 40%. We talked about things like Six Flags and all those. So those sorts of things, entertainment things that are uh, like that, like theme parks and stuff, cruise ships, whatever. We're talking about levels in which your gross profit margin is usually about um, 90% or something, you know, not, not 50%. And so it's all based on having very, very high operating expenses that you have there, right? And that's how you're able to do it. But surviving on more narrow gross profit margins is usually a like safer way to be protected against competition. Obviously narrow gross margins while having very high profitability is really attractive. Um, it's something I always warn about that you want a high gross profit margin because the thing is with a business like this, if I was looking at it in the early days, right, the big warning sign would be this is a really, really tough business in which anyone who doesn't get enough scale may not be able to earn much money. The upside, though, is that if you get a lot of scale, it may be so difficult for other people to fund themselves with it that they'll exit the business because the gross margins aren't high enough. That's where we talk about, like, economists and stuff talk about uh, the minimum, um, you know, the minimum necessary scale that you need for it. So the minimum scale at which you can be efficient and stuff. But I talk about it as like a habitable zone, right? Like, can this business exist and stay in business and keep funding itself and stay a, as a competitor, right? The problem that you have is like, say a restaurant or something, a really small restaurant can do exactly that. You know, one successful location, it can do that. And so like, there's no way to ever eliminate all the competition, no matter how efficient you get. But a business like this, you can see that there's probably a pretty serious problem if you try to operate at much lower scale, right? Because the leader with tremendous scale actually doesn't even have those amazing gross profits, right? They have amazing profits overall. Um, and actually they're, you know, like we said, return on equity and all that, it's really good. But what is it like a Costco type return on equity or something? Uh, uh, um, you know, railroads use debt. So the actual return on invested capital on railroad would be less, but I would expect the return on in, in the owner's money return might even be better at a railroad than um, at Taiwan Semiconductor. But so there, it's just, you know, that's the kind of business that Buffett would, I think, be interested in, probably because he would understand it from Apple, but also because he understands some things like Nebraska Furniture Mart, Costco, uh, the railroads that I think he likes and is comfortable enough with some sort of things about scale advantages and stuff um, that he doesn't necessarily talk as much about. But he has talked about, you know, survival of the fattest and all that kind of stuff. Um he would prefer, you know, seize candies, right? You'd prefer the really high gross margin, no need for capital and all that. 
But if you have to buy $300 billion companies, then this kind of thing would make sense. And I don't know that he bought this. It could be someone else, but it, it has all the marks of Buffett just in terms of the price, the growth levels. I mean, on a quantitative basis, it looks like Buffett in every way, right? Totally. And even like the price earnings, right? I mean, he. this is sort of, if you look at, for people want to learn, I mean, this is a perfect snapshot of a company that he would be interested in, even by just like Jeff laid out, the variability of the margins, the stability of the margins. Uh, you know, the price that he's paying from a PE perspective, this looks entirely like Buffett. Correct. The problem is the first two words, Taiwan and semiconductor is what would make people think no way that's Buffett, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. But he bought, yeah. he bought PetroChina and people would yeah. say mm -hmm. oil, China. No, Buffett would never do that. But that, mm -hmm. I, that PetroChina one, I think was a hundred percent his idea and everything. I don't think he discussed that with anybody. That's not like a BYD. That's like Munger's idea or something. I, yeah. Th there's no way that someone else came up with that one. So. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. Okay. Let's go on to another point of reflection. What was your favorite experience or memory in 2022 in relation to focus compounding capital management and everything that we're doing? Personally, mine was probably Omaha, yeah. but I'm curious to hear yours. Yeah. Mine was Omaha. And what did you like the most about it? And will we be there for 2023? I mean, it's crazy to think that that's, you know, we have to start planning for these things. But I mean, right. Jeff, I mean, hotel hotel rates go through the roof. Yeah, um, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I mean, you know, one, we saw some people in person, right, who listened to the podcast or something like that. So that is a nice benefit as opposed to just, you do this and put it out there and who knows if eight people are listening or, or 8,000 or whatever. Right. Um, and so, you know, that that's part of it. Yeah. Um, and I, th yeah, for me, that was probably the best part of it was that way. Um, there were other things that were oh, okay. And odd and stuff, but you know, got used to, uh, obviously, you know, you're in this really strange, situation where you know you're recognizing all these people and they're recognizing you and stuff so you know people coming up to you and asking you like um if you're jeff gannon and stuff um is weird you know as you'd imagine um and we're there together too so obviously people are going to recognize us um you know because because you know it's a lot easier than if we were traveling with other people and you know they might not see the exact two people that they see on uh on YouTube and on stuff like that all the time. So, um, so it was pretty interesting that way, you know, but I'll, you know, like, um, so it was just, and it was good talking to people and, and, um, it, it, even in other things, we, we went out to, uh, dinner and stuff afterwards with some people and stuff. And that was interesting too, just even, um, because we don't normally get a chance to talk about whatever stuff, stocks and things with lots of other people who do that. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, as you'd imagine, we don't normally speak to like other portfolio managers on a regular basis and stuff, you know? So that is something that only they understand and stuff what you're talking about. Um, so that, that is different too. And that was nice. Mm -hmm. 2023. Will we be in attendance? I don't know. Is that decided yet? Well, we got to decide, but the uh, people have been asking. People okay. have been asking. I always thought it would be a good thing to make that a yearly thing. Yeah. Um, just I mean, be just I'm... because it's like there's investors of ours that go there. There's people that listen to the podcast that go there. And it's kind of easy just to have it all be, you know, three or four days. 
and uh just you're there in this setting and it's fun and you know it's kind of perfect for it yeah no company just go there yes i'm uh i'm for it and i'm fine doing it uh i feel like um the people who organize and stuff for us in terms of the the event that we did you know um probably gave a lot of free drinks to people and stuff that uh, you know i don't know if it all converts into like business um or as much as like just a you know meeting and listening to people and whatever um but you know it's it's great for us and it's great for the people who go there and it's a good experience you know i don't know if that's like how that works exactly in terms of just because you have a lot of people um listening to you and meeting you and and all that kind of stuff if that like is the you know the best way to uh, bring in money and stuff so you know um mm. but you know i mean because like we it's hard to get space and stuff there yeah you know very much so um i mean on that weekend i'm sure you know you can get space in Omaha for other things but um yeah as pe if pe people have been there i'm sure know that like everything is booked up and you're seeing people in all the hotels and everything having events of all i mean different companies are having events that have booked up things different um, money managers are doing it and just all sorts of different things. Everyone's meeting and greeting and having their annual things and whatever. So it becomes like you're suddenly like, you know, in New York or whatever, trying to get space and stuff. So, yeah. But I mean, they did a great job doing it for us. So, yeah, absolutely. But for anybody listening that maybe it's been on the edge about going or not going, I think the both of us would totally recommend you should go, especially the two gentlemen that you probably want to go there for. Uh, that is Buffett and Munger, um, you know, given their age, you should definitely go. So follow the regret minimization framework and go and you have a good time. Um, and the best part about it is the people that you meet there. Right. right. It's just uh, everybody's yeah. investor there. Everybody. Yeah. I was going to say, I think, you know, go for that, but like spend time around it with um, uh, all the other stuff around it is the part that's really good. Within a few blocks, you're going to have all the different companies and people and whatever that you've ever wanted to see and talk to and all that even get together with a group of people to go or something who, who like that kind of stuff and are interested in, and you can just one hotel after another, one bar after another, will just be filled with all these people that you've read their books or you've invested with them or you follow what they're invested in or whatever, you know, and all sorts of things that uh, people who do podcasts and stuff like we do are there and whatever. I mean, it's just, you know, um, I think there's way, way more around that than people realize, right? That it's not just a bunch of people coming to uh omaha for the annual meeting see it and then they like you know they shop there they see it they leave it's all the stuff around it makes it it's like you're being at a um like multi-day like trade show convention type of atmosphere the whole thing yeah absolutely absolutely okay let's move on the biggest winner what would you consider to be the biggest winner in 2022 as it relates to either an investor or just markets in general if you had to break down something and say yeah that was a a winning thing as it relates to financial markets in 2022 what would you say well probably like whatever aqr does right uh you know so it's sort of some so strategies that didn't work before with no volatility and interest rates at zero and all of that that kind of stuff the much more traditional some of it's not so traditional as it's heavily quantitative but like the idea of like a hedged fund right um, mm. That stuff worked really, really well. 
Yeah. Not just like didn't work well. It didn't just work well in turn in one market or in one thing. It worked well all over everywhere. The kinds of stuff that made money in the well, that we talk about making money through periods in the sixties and seventies and into the eighties at times, that did really well and had not done well for basically the last decade. Um so that kind of thing, um, which is more cheap, short term. Um and um, very value-driven in terms of like kind of provable values um, and stuff that normally makes money all the time, makes small amounts of money all the time, right, that you can do in those things. So um, it's the equivalent of when we talk about in our world, the the arbitrage and the net nets and things like that. That's the stuff that did better um, and not the big giant companies that are the quality companies, right? Like quality didn't do that well um, or, you know, Things that are low quality and expensive did even worse, actually. But, but even things that are high quality and expensive, right? I mean, now Tesla is considered a leader in what they do and has some of the best financial metrics in that. You know, um, Disney's one of the better uh, diversified entertainment companies. Netflix is the leader in, um, and you know, if you had a basket of those three, uh, you know, what are you? You. you went from having like a million dollars to 350,000 or whatever. I don't know the exact number, but something horrible like that. It, you know, if you bought them on day one till today. So, uh, but because they're all really expensive versus peers, really expensive versus, you know, they're, they're the things that I wouldn't short them. But if you had to predict, will this company do better than that company? They would be the ones that you'd benchmark against and stuff. I mean, Buffett, just took higher endowments from colleges and said, I'll take, you know, when he was in the later days of his hedge fund, um, just get, I'll just want everything that you own. That's what I'm going to short. I'll take it all as a basket. I don't need to yeah. know, know what's in it and stuff. That's what worked this year. Right. And mm-hmm. I mean, certainly for us and stuff, I would have, if, <laughs> if we had been positioned that way, we had the portfolio that we had, plus we would be short, uh, short out, the expensive things well then we look like we had a really good year compared to what we did you know it's because on a relative basis versus the most expensive things a lot of stuff worked well right so being in commodities um versus stocks right being in cash i mean if we saw what asset classes did the best right it's like gold cash um as i said if you're we're outside the u.s and invested in stuff that you benefit from dollar um but just in general Things that were not financial assets, right? So your bonds, your mm-hmm. stocks did the worst and the most expensive of those things, right? So like, um, uh, what would be, so like, um, what? well, I don't know how it did this year, but like, as an example, going into the year, you would have expected what's like some of the most expensive bonds in the world. It's German government bonds, right? So they probably, I don't know what they did this year, but I bet they didn't do well. Um, even compared to other things that, uh, you know, so they're just the extreme overpricing of things, even though that might be perceived as some of the highest quality bonds there are out there, they are really expensive. Mm-hmm. My answer, I mean, just to simplify it, I didn't think we would spend half the podcast <laughs> talking about them, but it was just actually Warren Buffett, right? I hate to be a broken record about it, but Berkshire Hathaway is up 2% as we sit here and record right now. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and just Buffett's investing in general, right? Like, again, it was just, I would give him sort of the, the king's hat for the year because his investment in Occidental Petroleum, I mean, Occidental is up like what, 100 something plus percent on the year. Yeah. I think it's one of the better performance stocks in the S&P 500. And, you know, it was just a great example of when all the excess comes out of the market, 
that's when Buffett continues to march to the beat of his own drum and continues to shine. So uh, if I were giving giving any sort of investor or anything financially related, uh, sort of the winning trophy of the year, I would give it to Buffett. And I think it's just a great testament to why he's been doing this for as long as he has and why some of these other investors that we speak about where, you know, they have some crazy years and then they're out of the business three or four or five years later. This is just why Buffett is still around and why he's been around forever. Yeah. And the thing that's really interesting that we haven't talked about in terms of what he actually did this year and stuff is if you, yeah, I can't think of many managers who would do anything like this. Uh, in one way, it was very macro um, because basically he sold banks and bought oil. Now, like he bought a lot more oil than he sold banks because he didn't have all that much of the banks to sell down and stuff. But it's interesting what he did. And it's very macro driven that way. And I, you know, it might not, each of these things on their biggest numbers don't seem to matter that much, you know, in terms of Berkshire's overall portfolio, it doesn't look like he's doing that much, but he did that. And he did arbitrage, right. Too. He's pretty very, active. Yeah. And not just pretty active, but active in ways that he normally isn't. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that is he, you know, I don't know if he saw, sees a sea change of the way that, um, we're talking about with Howard Marks, right? But he definitely took actions that would be more consistent with like this is 1974 or something than uh, this is 2014, right? Um, because he had long been just holding on to a lot of financial things and if anything trimmed those things and eliminated them, uh, whether it seemed like for price reasons or something, he wouldn't necessarily do that. And he kept buying oil even as it was going up to some extent. You know, he would buy when it came down a little bit. He wasn't always buying at the top, but he was buying even as it was going up that way which is not normally his thing to do in terms of um, uh, such a macro speculation, big buys in Chevron and Occidental when you kind of add the two together, right? And even the Activision one is a large individual arbitrage position. Um, you know, I mean, he bought kind of the maximum that you'd probably be comfortable with having a, you know, one investor in for an arbitrage thing. Um, you know, he might be willing to buy more for a company he plans to hold forever, but for a trade, that's probably the most percentage of the company he would ever buy. So it's kind of maxing it out that way. Yeah. Well said. And I agree. Uh, the biggest loser in 2022, if we're going to talk about the winner, well, we got to talk about the loser. So what would you give the biggest loser trophy in 2022 as it relates to investors or markets? I mean, I'm, I don't want to say it because it's unfortunate. I think the biggest loser is probably individual investors, you know, young self-directed investors, just based on what I know from, well, polls and things and what they say that they're invested in and in what ways, you know, mo most of the things we're talking about, the, these professional money managers and these big things and whatever have an allocation to crypto stuff of zero. Um, that's not the case for some of these others. They have an allocation to meme stocks of zero, right? Um, same thing here, right? And so th they're probably, honestly, the ones that on a percentage basis and stuff did the worst. Yeah. I don't think, you know, we talked about the dot-com thing. That was a period which was interesting in that some new um, retail investors who never invested in stocks before and stuff were doing way better than the market. This is probably a year where they did way worse. I had FTX as my <laughs> biggest yeah. L in 2022. And you know, it's funny for everybody listening, when we got off our podcast last week, Jeff was like, I think we may be the only 
commentators, podcasters, whatever involved in, uh, you know, finance that have not brought up the whole FTX debacle. And, you know, you kind of have a variant view on it, which I'm not going to, if you don't want to share it, no worries, but I'll kind of share what you kind of said. All right. A lot of investors, Sequoia, people are like, oh, we're in the business of taking risk. Uh, You know, it's not the investor's fault. I didn't even bring that up to you, but you just had come out and told me that you thought it was fascinating because you had thought it was so obvious that there was something weird going on with FTX. Yeah. And you yeah. said that you thought it had all of the hallmarks of well, being a situation where something weird could be going on. Okay, so we could get real technical with this and stuff. It misses one hallmark of it, which is the... I've heard um, Sam Bankman-Fried right, um, talk before in the past. Not a lot, because now people heard him way more talk uh, talking things uh, now than ever in the past. Uh, but transcripts of what he said to different people and interview things and whatever. And uh, his personality in those public venues for the most part is not entirely consistent with a fraud from the beginning normally so i've talked about this about having um you know markers of um things that are consistent with psychopathy and with just general um tendency to deceive uh take pleasure in deceiving others um a disconnect between being able to say things that aren't true and, and not bothering you that, that they aren't true, you know, playing off of you're seeing the other person's face, you're talking to them, you're selling to them, you're just a salesman without any sense of what you're selling. Um, his personality, though, strange, is not entirely consistent with that as much as some other people. So it's not the most like obvious one. I, like I think I said to you off the podcast, to me, it was not as obvious as Theranos, which was obvious, you know hearing two minutes about it um and that went on for a really long time but it does have all the unfortunate markers of like if you were going to create a fraud how would you create it and all of that it has all the things that would be key to doing that um and the actual behavior that he had that we knew about and stuff is also consistent with fraud stuff you know involving people who have ties to you in other ways and stuff putting them in charge of that stuff separating yourself from it that's a lot of things about makes it easier to blame other people, right. For, for when a fraud happens, you know, because it has that conspiracy aspect to it. That's always kind of the point that I make about fraud things is that usually there is not a smoking gun because it's a conspiracy and a conspiracy. You can't prove a conspiracy of any kind on that basis, because, you know, if you're the, that's why like, you know, Rico laws and stuff exist. If you're the head of the mafia or whatever, you don't have to uh, put out a memo saying exactly who to kill when and why and who should carry yeah. it out. You can express it through the way that your organization works and everything in different ways to carry out what you want to be done with the actual actions being taken by people under you doing all that. So, um, but you know, it had all the markings of that, obviously. Yeah. I mean, the big ones, like we said constantly is, you know, it's the exact opposite of what people say, which is, well, how could something that was endorsed by all these celebrities and had all these people and well, who would need that? Right. That, you know, a fraud needs that. Why do you say that we're pushing for regulation, doing all these things while you're actually like in the Bahamas and who knows what you're doing? You know, and we knew that we knew all of that. So who does that? That's someone who wants to present themselves as complying with regulations and stuff and then actually not doing it. Who needs their to? Actions. Yeah. We knew everything about the political donations. Who needs to do that? The SNL crisis. Right. If you look at some of the really bad ones there. It was they were the most politically connected. That wasn't an accident. It wasn't like the politicians' fault that they were politically connected. They, the politicians, would just take the money. But the reason they needed that 
those connections and stuff to be a protection for them and in the sense of just giving a um veneer of that you know in public and so a lot of times there was a presentation of this as being um the cleanest uh sort of organization in a part of town that's probably full of a lot of not so clean organizations, right? That's kind of how they presented themselves. You understand that you're taking credible risks and there's a lot of dodgy stuff going on in this industry and who knows, but we're the most um, trustworthy of those in it and everything. So, you know, like stadium naming rights, of course, is, you know, I'm not, I mean, there's Gillette and stuff named stadiums, but um, it's not, you know, that kind of thing, political things, the celebrity things, um, all of that is, you know, stuff that you're more likely to see with frauds putting, you know, um, now there's other stuff that's different in that they didn't do a thing where they had a board and filled it up with respectable people and all that, which is normally what you do. That's more the Theranos approach. And that's what I've talked about that having, you know, whenever anyone tells me, well, it can't be a fraud because it has all these amazing people on the board. Usually it's more likely because it has a bunch of people who don't understand anything about accounting or business or whatever, but like one, you know, peace prizes and served in government and our celebrities and stuff, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah, maybe yeah. they didn't have a board. They didn't have a CFO, no. the weird related parties with his girlfriend that's running the hedge mm-hmm. fund and just a bunch of odd stuff. You just ticked off a bunch of stuff that I've seen publicly traded companies that people think are not frauds that check those same boxes literally don't have a actual CFO or the CFO is some also someone else. Um, the connection like husband and wife or, uh, or the girlfriend or whatever. Um, yeah. And not really, they're not really being a board or something. Um, so, you know, you do see it and it doesn't mean in any of these cases that it is a fraud or that the point at which it started to be a fraud and stuff, but, and then they just had the huge opportunity for fraud here, which we've talked about mostly off the podcast because I don't like to talk about it because, you know, I think Buffett said this, you know, what point is there? I'm not going to dissuade anyone from investing in this stuff. And uh, the people who are investing in will, you know, not listen to anything else that we have to say if if we talk about it that way. But um, it's there's a lot of selling of stuff in crypto things that bother me. Um, I Like there's the things that get all the publicity, but then there's the little things that actually bother me the most about it that aren't as talked about in how they represent some things. And uh, one that bothered me and it failed was the uh, arbitrage thing that, you know, you kind of create this situation similar to SPACs where you kind of convince people they can't lose money and stuff on it because of the way you set it up. You convince people this arbitrage thing will naturally work and stuff, which anyone who knows a lot of stuff about arbitrage things know that's actually not true, that you can't that just because something should work that way that the market could fail and that in fact probably will in a lot of ways we talk about arbitrage things all the time and given enough time and enough capital and stuff and willingness people to do it it'll work out but uh you know buffett was willing to do a deal for long-term capital management and he would have taken it and all those arbitrage positions were worked out long-term capital management failed though because you know the their trades which were correct weren't going to work instantly and um, also the backing with the reserves, you know, nonsense that we've talked about. There's a lot of evidence, I think, that people are misled in the sense of like that you have assets that in some way are similar to cash. Um, and that's not true and probably hasn't been true at a lot of these places for a long time. And it's just it's bad because to the public, it's like, well, yeah, banks do this and um 
the same sort of thing, right? Like we have more reserves than the banks or something. Yeah, but the there's certain things that banks can own, certain things that they can't own. When you deposit money in a bank, um, it's a lot of it, banks, insurance companies, lots of these things, if you look at their balance sheet, can be turned into cash, will naturally turn into cash or can be turned into cash very quickly and under all sorts of different circumstances to pay you, the deposit holder, the policy holder back. Um, and if you just said, okay, well, a bank can go out and buy office buildings instead of, you know, making loans or something and say, oh, it's hundred percent backed by property. You know, they're not allowed to do that because you can't do that. You just not any asset. And in this case, sometimes these are made up tokens and things, but not any asset counts the same as any other asset. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah. Uh, sometimes the talks we have after the podcast or something are probably more interesting than what gets on. I know here. we got to do like an after dark <laughs> podcast where we like both like get a drink and just there and talk and yeah, yeah. we'll be, uh, we'll be banned from the industry, uh, after a few episodes. Yeah. With, with that one was happening is I was complaining. The thing that I was complaining about is the media things and other people like that saying, how, how could you tell this was a fraud ahead of time? How could we be held responsible for talking about it this way? It had all the marks that it was okay and whatever. And that is the part that bothers me people lose money on frauds and things that will happen um the venture capital things look it's not a big thing versus other ones they invest in it may work out fine to take a flyer on some of these things and not do a lot of due diligence on that but all the people who write the articles and stuff and then don't really say that we've been writing articles all the time that haven't gotten into all this including mm -hmm. basic things like you know okay where are you living right now and what's your connection between this person? I mean, just like really basic stuff of making sure that you have it to put in the article. Um, yeah. So it's it's the, like the media in the sense of the specific media coverage of it that bothers me and stuff. Um, no, I'm with you. I mean, I mean, full transparency, because I just I don't spend time in this crypto world. I did not hear about SBF before 2022. I mean, I didn't know who this guy was. I mean, quite frankly, I think I had saw some pictures of him here and there, probably scrolling through Twitter because I always, you know, I, it's pretty easy to remember somebody that has like an Afro or whatever, mm -hmm. but um, I, I had never heard of him. And then I remember just the PR and the articles that were coming out about him as being like the crypto savior that has billions of dollars to invest in this downturn that's happening in the overall crypto market. And, um, you know, and then, you know, props to over the counter, uh, markets, his, the, the CEO Cromwell, oh, yeah. he kind of, he called them out because somebody laid out a, a pretty decent Twitter thread or a long Twitter thread this summer, basically saying why FTX should buy over the counter markets. And I think it was the president at the time. He like said, oh, this is a very interesting thread and FTX and Sam like the post. And then Cromwell comes out nowhere and basically says FTX is not Lindy. OTCM is Lindy. We've been around for a long time. FTX has to, you know, blah, 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 do whatever. But that was kind of my first like, okay, this is the SBF guy that I've been seeing everywhere with the mm -hmm. Afro that, you know, sort of plays this old you know, folksy Warren Buffett character, my effective altruism gives money, blah, 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 you know? So it was just weird to me, kind of like the whole, like, how'd you go bankrupt gradually? And then suddenly it mm -hmm. was like, I heard about him for 20 minutes. And right. within that 20 minutes, he was sort of this pariah. And now he is this individual that yeah. is probably going to spend like 30 years in prison, I'm sure at a minimum. I mean, if not more. So it's just, it's so wild. I just, I don't know. I just don't get it. I don't understand why people take that route. And um, it's just weird. It, it literally is weird. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, I guess I'd only heard about it mostly because of the the thing that really got it, I think, was this most recent election cycle because it's all very public, Yeah, what money mm-hmm. you've given and who's the top donors. And so people who report on that, who may not know that much about finance things or any of this, will dig into it and be like, wait, what is this? Like, how yeah. is this thing I've never heard of donating some of the most to a bunch of these, um, like on a bunch of different lists for different party things and whatever, which is really unusual because it's a pretty boring list usually of people who have incredible amounts of money that you're used to seeing and, and organizations that need to really lobby on certain things and stuff. And um, so that I think really stood out. And then the other thing, which is you see a lot is like any article is like the same article. I mean, before this all went bad, it's like the same stuff. Like you could tick off exactly what things they're going to mention, right? They're going to mention who his parents were and what they did and stuff and and um, all of that and the like exact same thing like you said about the the, the effective altruism thing and all that, um, you know. Uh, so it's like the same sort of, it's, it feels like you're seeing the same article all the time and not people who really either have access or whatever and are just kind of writing articles about it. Obviously at some point putting up his picture and and his name and stuff got clicks, Right. Because it just yeah. started appearing, you know, I wasn't reading these articles and stuff, but it just started appearing as a thing as if it was Elon Musk or something like, let's just put him up there and we know that more people will view this. Right. And that mm-hmm. lasted for, I don't know, was it months, weeks before then it suddenly it went literally like the ad I would see all the time was it was like Sam kind of standing against a wall. And I think the sun was in his eyes and he was kind of squinting. And the like title was this guy that's worth 20 billion plans to give it all away or blah 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 it was just it was so weird right and even like the picture to me felt very deliberate because i mean the pr that this company used obviously was huge and i think they really played into this character you know so i don't know it was just it's a very odd situation and we'll find out more as time goes on but it's um it's sad and then the amount of people that are involved right like the Mooch, Kevin O'Leary, and you now Kevin O'Leary's going on a campaign himself. He was paid like $15 million and he's going on saying that, you know, I was a paid spokesman. I've always said I'm a paid spokesman. And, um, you know, certain individuals that even are, uh, I don't, I wouldn't call them FinTwit influencers. I'd say more so like okay. YouTube influencers for finance stuff. They have come out and said they were paid for every single time they mentioned FTX. Just very odd, right? They spent so much money to get their name out there. And I guess some people could look at that as well. They were doing it to get this widespread adoption that crypto needed or whatever, but it was just bizarre. The whole thing was bizarre. And again, like I said, it was like 20 minutes. It was here and then now it's gone, you know? Yeah. And so that the the paid people and the coverage stuff is the part that bothers me because, you know, um, if you write articles about something or you take pay for something and talk about it, you know that you're directing some people to that. And so you should at least check in something to make sure that it isn't, you know, um, totally a fraud or whatever things that it might be. Um, it doesn't mean that if you, you know, do an ad for, uh, you know, uh, tequila or whatever, that it has to always be your favorite tequila, that you only drink that one. But you do need to make sure that, you know, it's not harmful to people and stuff. And it is what it says it is, right? Um, and mm-hmm. that's my problem with the the media coverage and the people who are uh, spokespeople for it and stuff is that you are like directing people to that thing. And when we're talking about fraud, it's something completely different. You could advertise a product that's not very good and whatever, but if it is what it says it is, that's completely different um, than if you're directing people to something that actually may just be a lot of smoke and mirrors and stuff like that. And you have no basis on which to know that. But of course, all the people's argument will be, well, everyone else, I mean, and it's true. Well, I figured everyone else did the due diligence. 
I mean, that's the huge part about this is when people talk to us or whatever, you know, for the most part, there isn't as much due diligence being done as people think of the kind that's like actually very important. Buffett talks about like, or has said sort of, you know, like price is my due diligence and like, yeah, you can make decisions very quickly and whatever. But what he means by that is like, he knows the people are, or he thinks he knows that the people seem trustworthy and stuff to him. And if there's anything off about them, he's not going to do a deal with them and stuff like that. No, he doesn't know about various legal things that might not, that the company may not have said that actually we have this lawsuit that we haven't disclosed that because we don't think it's material and this thing. And there's some environmental liability here that we've never disclosed because we don't think that's material, you know, whatever they could be hiding. But if he thinks that they're honest enough people and the normal sort of things are in for that, it's not going to make or break the deal, right? It's totally different when we're talking about a fraud. And so Mm -hmm. um, that's the kind of thing that, you know, that kind of stuff actually matters a lot to look into the people and to think about and all that. Whereas when you're doing, when they actually spend a lot of due diligence for some merge or something, it doesn't matter, right? I mean, Microsoft can do all the due diligence they want on Activision it's mostly all out there and the things, you know, they might be some stuff about the employee stuff with different um, sexual discrimination and other issues um, that they may have some of the information and not all and stuff when they made their offers. But other than that, I mean, they know everything that they need to know in terms of the size of the deal and whatever, they know what they're getting, right? When it's things like this, we have no idea, you know, and so it's completely different. So I do try to warn people about that because I get talked a lot more than you might think about things that I go, you know, there's some problems here um, that I would just say, don't do it. And actually that was something I was going to put into when I was talking about the Buffett confidence thing, because Alice Schroeder talks about how Buffett looks at catastrophic risk first. Can I lose everything and makes that decision first? And one thing that I think Buffett talks a little bit about, but I think people misinterpret is if you read the actual biographies and things, some stuff Buffett said, if it's his decision, right. And he, is not okay with the situation of the people involved or something. He smells something that does not seem right that way. He's going to not deal with that at all. Now, he's not going to talk about it or anything, but it's just not going to happen. Um, and that's anything. I mean, I think that would be true of a charity thing or whatever. Like, just like if there's some element of stuff that he doesn't like that way in terms of the people involved or whatever, then it's over and he's not going to, he's not going to deal with comment and stuff. And, the problem that I have, I think when I talk to a lot of investors who get involved in frauds and stuff is they don't start with that. They don't start with the fact that there's a lot of red flags about this person or whatever. That's the last thing that they look at. And so they go, Oh, I had all this stuff that I like about it. They found it on quick FS or a screener or whatever. It's got all this stuff that they really like and they don't get to that point. Um, and then, so that at that point, it's, I've got all this upside and everything. And then I just have to decide if this is or isn't, you know? Um, but even a small chance of that is something to be avoided. And so, you know, you can never prove that something is a fraud ahead of time, really, you know, but you can see the difference in the things that are orders of magnitude higher. You can tell the difference between this could be, I mean, let's just do that. Is this 10 times more likely to be a fraud than most things I look at? Yes. With FTX or something, we go, yes, this is, you know, compare FTX and OTC markets. Would FTX be 10 times more likely to be a fraud? Absolutely. I think there's no doubt you could say 10 times or more likely. Now, most things you see in public markets are really unlikely to be that kind of fraud. So it could be that one is a 0.2% chance. And so this is a 2% chance, but it's still a warning to you that if you're saying, oh, this is like hugely more likely, maybe I should just avoid that and avoid that throughout my entire career. Then I'll be much more successful in terms of compounding over time and stuff like Buffett does. And I think people might underestimate Buffett's skills in 
analyzing people almost instantly that way. And that's a really important one um, that he probably crosses some things out because of the people involved. Well said. Let's go on. What surprised you the most um, in 2022 in relation to financial markets, investors, business in general? Was there something that you were kind of like, wow, I did not foresee that coming. And even though I'm reading the news, I am shocked. Um, I don't believe it's true. I I was surprised by how much the Fed raised rates uh, and said that they would continue to raise rates and that sort of thing. I was surprised by how unconcerned people were about inflation to some extent, people in markets and things, not necessarily the average person talking about it, but just the general belief that those things would settle down and stuff. So the, the kind of mix between those two. Um, in more you know, broader things, you talk about the Ukraine thing, I was surprised how many people didn't think that the invasion would happen uh, and then how strong the response was after that and how confrontational it was and stuff. So, which I'm sure surprised Russia too. So, um, so I just mean both of those things, I guess what, why I would mention them, those two together, the, the fed thing and the inflation and the, the uh, Russia and the response is the issue there is um, sort of signals beforehand of it to what then they actually did wasn't very good in, um, in getting people to understand what was going to happen. Right. So like in the Ukraine thing, um, where you take the United States and some other NATO, uh, members and stuff, if they had a way of clearly signaling to Russia exactly what they'd be doing, uh, Russia might've been a lot like less likely to invade, but they have no way to show that credibility. There's no way that Russia would say, Oh, that's definitely what they're going to do. They're definitely going to every company, in the West and stuff is going to like shut down and pull out, even if they've been in here for decades and they're going to be like people's, you know, um, saying, should we let Russian teams, you know, and, and uh, people and whatever into different countries and compete in things or whatever. Should we just like, you know, they basically cancel Russia. Right. If they knew that that kind of thing and the sanctions and all that stuff was really going to happen, then they might've thought differently with the inflation thing and the fed. Similarly, um, I, what's surprising to me about that is the Fed did not in any way signal what they were going to be doing in the year ahead. So we've talked about that, that it was might be necessary to get to like 4% or something and to do it rather fast. Totally reasonable if I didn't know what the Fed w was communicating. But based on what they were communicating, this did not seem realistic that they would do this based on their past behavior for the last 15 years or, or so. And, um, you know, just during COVID and everything, and their communications throughout a period in which there's pretty high inflation, especially continuing to say transitory for a very long period of time, um, that kind of stuff really was made it less likely to believe that the Fed would do what they did. How much of that do you think was political? Because I remember distinctly last year was like, you know, Powell was basically, we'll be slow, this is transitory, but then he was reelected to being the continuing being the chairman of the federal reserve and then it was boom that next meeting it was very much like a different tone that he was communicating to the market um i mean the fed avoids whatever whether they say it or not they they avoid you know doing things which are really close to the election if possible right um i do think to some extent they've just always expected inflation to be lower than it has been every single month um so they've always expected to come down faster and stuff. And that's part part of what maybe people don't understand right now about 
why they put the things they did in for the dot plot in the future and everything is that they had always expected inflation to start coming down and come down in a meaningful way. So when inflation did start coming down, that was not news to them. That's what they'd been expecting for like at that point, almost a year or something that they would expect. They would have expected that break in it. Um, all the inflation expectation, uh, the inflation predictions for like months ahead and what it will be next year and stuff from everybody, all the central banks and stuff have been dramatically wrong. Um, they show this huge steep drop in inflation um, really rapidly compared to what happened. So, um, so I mean, I, I do think that that's a big part of it, that they were convinced that it was a temporary thing. And there's a lot of people who believe that that is true now you know, talking about it more because they're worried about how, how high rates are and how much damage that can do and everything. So you, I mean, there's lots more people speaking out saying that they're making a mistake and stuff now where they weren't so worried to talk about that before because if it's transitory or not, what does it matter that much if you raise rates from zero to 2%? Um, it's when they're getting to these sorts of levels that people get worried and start coming out in public about it. Mm -hmm. All right, let's shift to predictions for 2023. So one year from now, we could replay the tape and laugh at um, potentially how wrong we were. So what will be the biggest winners, do you think, in 2023 as it relates to financial markets? So either business, investors, a theme, a certain sector. What do you think will be the biggest winner in 2023? Wow. I mean, if I knew that, then I guess we'd be invested in it. Well, I hope um, so, right? I, I mean, I, I'm going to cop out here. I said value investors. Okay. Right? Like, I really think value is going to come back. I know that is the famous last word. I think this year was a good year for that. Um, the rotation out of growth, the absolute slaughter of anything speculative and all that came with that. I think value is going to shine in 2023. You can book it. You can bet on it. You can invest on it. But please don't, because I'm not your financial advisor. This is not financial advice. That was kind of a joke. This is for entertainment purposes only. Valley investors. Okay. Well, I mean, I hope so, I guess. Um, <laughs> there's, I mean, we invest into, you know, things that I mean, I don't know if they're, they, we have a strong value bet. Uh, we invest in some things that might be more quality things or whatever than the very cheapest value. But um, I'm not sure what will. Uh a huge part of it in terms of predicting a year out or something is knowing things about when you will have a recession and when you will have financial conditions easing again and what the date of that will be sort of. So when's the most likely time for that to happen? If we had to guess sometime between like this very second, uh, it's starting uh, the, uh, you know, like um, the, a, um, and then getting worse to a period of, you know, halfway through the year or whatever, right? So it could be that at some point you'll see a turn in things. Um, things that do really badly right now or at the end of, uh, in the beginning of next year and stuff may at some point turn. And when we look back at it, say actually they bottomed during the year, right? So mm -hmm. I don't know in terms of a calendar year thing that way. Um, this year worked, you know, we'll see, but it seemed to have been perfect in terms of the uh, way in which the calendar worked so that like the exact top of things and stuff was basically like, you know, pretty much the, the first day of January. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so it makes this calendar year very convenient. Like the down 20% will look really, really bad 
for a calendar year when compared to other calendar years, but down 20%, you know, from an exact one point in time to an exact other point isn't, uh, could be more common than what this feels like. Uh, because over an entire calendar year, you know, you had, um, in 87, you had a huge crash you had a stock market doing well, huge crash, then a bit of a recovery works out to be very nothing year, you know, a typical year, you know, if you do it on calendar year basis, but I think people would remember that one pretty well. Right. So, uh, so we'll see. Um, but a lot of it, I think depends on that kind of stuff. Um, the stuff that looks really interesting in terms of just like when people ask, what are the cheapest stocks that you, you see and stuff? Um, the ones that like stand out as really weird, um, not, not weird because they have problems and they could continue to have problems and stuff, but that stand out as like remarkably cheap are we've mentioned before, like, um, Vera Bradley, which is a not successful in the last 10 years or so maker of handbags and stuff, lower priced ones and things. That's come um, up on our screen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, the Container Store, which is like a terribly busted IPO and stuff. But if you didn't know that based on the past financials and didn't know what was coming ahead, would look incredibly cheap. I don't know if you've looked at that in terms of like the price on multiples and things, but it's insane. Have you been to a Container Store? I have. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a huge, that's a uh, belief in something that did not, you know, that's a, you know, it's a basically busted IPO type thing, right? So that's like a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, enthusiasm for something that was misplaced, I think, right? And then also some looking ahead to see, oh, well, the trends are not going to be good for, you know, next year and stuff. But it looks like a stock without any constituency, right? Like just no one wants to buy this thing and it's, you know. Um, so because if you look at the history before, uh, you know, it's past record. It's a high quality, very slow growing retailer. And then it has like this, but can you see the, can you do like a year chart or something? So like you can see what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. If, okay. So, um, yeah. So just that chart like there is a good example of yeah. Year, year to date or one year or whatever. But, uh, if you go to like an all time chart, cause it's not much longer that it's been public. Um, yeah. yeah so you can see like where it started. It went public in 2013. It was around 44, 45 bucks a share. And for people listening, it's currently at $4 around yeah but anyway um it you know for the last year or whatever it's been down a lot and it's just very cheap and stuff that way compared to other sorts of retailers and everything and there's not a lot in the business thing it's kind of like when we talked about Haynes brands and stuff there's not a lot in the business thing that would give you an idea of why that would be but there is if you listen to like uh predictions for next year or something right so it looks like a um a really niche sort of slow growing, really slow to expand business that actually is pretty high quality for what it is and everything, though it's not some amazing business or whatever that way, but you know, it's, it's not some amazing growth business or whatever. And, um, obviously is priced like it's going out of business, right? It's just like, um, for a bunch of reasons, uh, including, you know, like the plans that they have for the future, not being things that you want to hear right now and stuff and like whether they're realistic about it and stuff, but also just like how bad the current environment we are in is for this kind of stock and stuff like that. So there are a lot in this kind of specialty retail consumer discretionary things that people just believe no one's going to spend on this stuff. Um, and so that kind of stuff is getting very cheap. I mean, even into the end of this year after avatar came out, movie theater stocks did not do well. Um, 
which is interesting because it did okay. Like it, it came in the bottom end of predictions probably, but it's, you know, that kind of movie has never opened at an incredible number and stuff, but it was like, that was the date for this is the one thing that could be huge or whatever, you know? And so then people feel like, oh, well then, you know, nothing good is going to happen after that point. Right. It was the one thing that all year people were talking about, well, this could be huge. You don't know how big it could be. We have no idea, you know? Um, so those things, which I also think is in part, like not high expectations for next year. People are just very pessimistic about that. You know, we have, don't talk about this on this podcast, but consumer sentiment surveys and stuff are terrible. Like if you ask people what is really happening with you or businesses, it's like, it's, you know, it's pretty good. You know, it's, it's certainly within normal stuff. But if you ask them, like, do you expect to be better off in a year? Like worse, how do you feel? How are things? It's, it's bad. If you just take the confidence part of it, the, you know, our, our right track, wrong track sort of thing for your business, for your household, whatever, it's all wrong track. It's going to be worse next year than before. This feels like a recession to me, you know? Um, so I think a lot of it in terms of the stock market and stuff will depend on that. And then whether there's a pivot in terms of, um, monetary policy and stuff, because you know, that wouldn't be surprised if those things coincide on terms of the stock market, because the stock market can easily bottom pretty much in the middle of, you know, that's like at, you know, we may not have said there, this was a recession start on such and such date by the time that's actually the date we say this is sure the stock market bottom. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So we could take the other side of that. What will be the biggest loser in 2023? And before you answer that, to give you a few seconds, I will share what I think will be the biggest loser. And I think it's going to be the expectations of retail investors. And I've said this a few times um, on the podcast that I think the markets that we had over the past you know, three or four years where people are just investing like drunken sailors, uh, just zero interest rate policy, stocks to the moon, unlimited amount of um, you know speculation. I believe those days are done. And I think the biggest loser in 2023 will be the retail investor that thinks if inflation ends up being transitory, or the Fed really breaks something and you know comes off on interest rates a little bit, or maybe they change how they think about inflation, whatever. Basically, if interest rates come down, I think the consensus is going to be that it's back to you know partying like a rock star, like how it was before. And I think those days are just done. So I think the biggest loser in 2023 will be the expectation of retail and growth investors. Yeah, that might be. I don't see a lot of stuff that seems incredibly overvalued and ready to, you know, decline by a lot. So there's some things that might not do well. Um, but not like coming into this year, there was much more stuff that we say this is radically overvalued and set up for bad things about to happen for some of them. There's some things that are incredibly expensive, but I don't see them like um uh, they're high quality and stuff as compared to what we had before. Um, so I'm not sure. I think um, probably, like I've been saying for a while, I think like um, the online versus offline. I think we've got lots more information on that, that online's not doing well. Um 
we've seen it in like just discrepancies in terms of like how sales are doing and um, as like deliveries and shipping and stuff. I don't think we'll see like a great Christmas season and stuff for online things versus offline. You know, when I was in malls and stuff offline, I think it's probably relative to last year doing better versus online than last year was. Um, so I think that that's something, but the question with that is some of these things have dropped a lot already. Now, mm. you know, if you're down 65%, people won't really remember in the history books that you dropped another 65% because it doesn't add a lot more to the decline. You know, when you say to people the S&P, uh, the, the S&P, the, um, you know, Dow or whatever dropped 80 to 90% in, in, uh, the great depression, um, that just, you know, it sounds like a number or whatever, but you have to remember after it's down 70%, a really big drop from there doesn't add a whole lot, you know, it doesn't add a whole lot more to that number. So we'll see, but I, I'd say, yeah, those sorts of things, those online sorts of things versus offline are probably the one that would be the biggest um, question for me, but some of them are down a bunch and some of them are really good companies, you know? So that's the, you know, um, even like we've talked about meta and stuff. Things could be really bad and the stock could do okay because the mm. it's priced in stuff so that priced. it's never priced in in the, its history. Um, Amazon's not a cheap stock, but it has repriced a lot versus what it you know was. So I don't know which ones there would be in that that would you know necessarily do that badly with having poor kind of business results. But I do think there will be some change in terms of uh, what people ex like what has good earnings growth next year versus what people have been used to. Um, you know, we already saw that this year where people were like excluding certain things, like here's earnings growth excluding, and we like we just throw energy out and stuff, you know, as mm -hmm. a, a category that doesn't count. We have to show you the other ones, and so, you know. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, you know, and then obviously there's been a big change in market cap stuff relative, right? Because like going into the year, what energy would have been like no percentage of anyone's, uh, you know, indexes and stuff, and information technology or whatever they call it would be huge. Now there's been a big change in that. So, um, yeah. I don't know exactly. Uh, I mean, um, some land things and stuff like that are really expensive. Um, and so some companies in that are maybe not so great um, futures for them. Um, I think some of that might be more overpriced than anything else I can think of. It's like real estate, especially in the other English speaking and some other economies that aren't the U.S., not that it'll be good for the U.S., but some of those are really expensive. And so some companies people bring me from those are the most overpriced, most in danger of like having really bad results at the same time as coming into it really overpriced is anything exposed to uh, residential real estate prices and things like that in, you know, um, the, you know, like I said, other English speaking countries and stuff. So, you know, UK, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, um, more so than the U.S. Um, but that, you know, you know, the U.S. home builders I've seen, they're kind of like priced more, not like they're about to be going out of business or anything, but they're priced cheaper than they had been the last few years, right? Even something like Greenbrick Partners, which I think is like the most premium priced of those sorts of things, probably. Um, there's a few others that might be as much as that are barely above book, right? They're at book. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then the really big ones seem to be a bit below book. So it's hard to say. I don't see good things in the future for companies like that because, you know, it, they, you might think the business results will drop off a lot, but that doesn't mean that the stock results will because getting in at one time's book or something is a big help. Right. Mm hmm. So very true. Yeah. Um, but you think it will be a good year for value? I do think it'll be a good year for value. 
Mm-hmm. I do. And I do think that, uh, I do think it's, there has been a sea change to quote Howard Marks. And, uh, I think it'll be a great time for stock pickers. I really do. For people yes. that aren't just investing on autopilot and are thoughtful about it. I mean, where we currently sit now, I like to kind of understand where we're at, right? Mm-hmm. To try to get an idea of where we're going, especially since so much of the markets is about the future and expectations and jazz like that. Uh, but so the bullish expectation for the S&P 500 next year is to earn about $220 a share, right? That's the ambitious target. And that is a 2023 EPS. And what we currently are trading right now, it's about 17 times is where we're at. Um, so I don't know. I mean, rates have gone from zero to, you know, four and a quarter, four and a half. Inflation is not really rolling off a lot. They're taking liquidity out from the system and the market is kind of trading at 17 times 2023 earnings. I could see how we could come down a lot more from where we currently are today. Yeah. So, well, I mean, look, in terms of price, it's expensive. Market's really expensive in terms of price overall, but I've said that for a lot of my career, right? So it's, (laughs) but I mean, the disconnect in terms of price versus interest rates and things is incredible. It's, it, you know, this is only back to like dot-com type stuff. Even it was a little more mild, the pricing and stuff around the financial crisis. So we're talking about during my career, certainly the only times are dot-com, uh, the bubble and right at the moment, the financial crisis that you ever had things where interest rates were at levels that were pretty reasonable in terms of you could get a return in bonds and things. And yet stock prices were pretty expensive. And, um, so the, your Schiller peas and things like that, they seem really, really expensive. Um, so on the other hand, two consecutive years of pretty similar sorts of things are, you know, really uncommon. Um, I can only think of like the thing like we've seen this year continuing at this pace and stuff for a whole nother year uh, is mostly something you see in like the 30s and the 70s. Uh, they had a period where it happened for about that. Most other things, you know, don't work at quite that way um, in that either things happen pretty rapidly. You know, you have some pretty huge declines um, instead of like it being sustained over such a long period of time. So, it you know, usually betting that if you had just had a bad year for the market or something, you'd bet positive things. But, you know, I did research as best I could on like normalized PE things and stuff. And there is a huge, huge effect that simply buying in uh, low priced years, you know, versus high priced is a lot better. That doesn't mean that some decades, even the high priced years do okay, but still you're better off buying in the low priced years, you know? Um, And so that is something that you know um it's just very uncommon for people to experience a period that goes for that long and that is something that we'll see because that will really change like what you're saying about these things um if it changes the attitudes of retail investors going forward and stuff like that and people's attitudes towards risk and stuff that see change that's really from a length of time i feel and not a huge drop people always think that this like gigantic drop this covid drop or this uh you know, financial panic or whatever is like, what does it, but usually you can get, you'd be surprised how quickly people get over a panic. Cause then they're like, well, we know what that was. It's over now. It's not going to mm-hmm. happen again. You know, there's not going to be a, ahead. Right. Like 
whatever, like bad things will happen. But if we just went through a horrible bank crisis, it won't be another horrible bank crisis. And that's all that people are looking out for, right? And if it's a horrible pandemic, it's not going to be another, the next thing that happens won't be a terrible pandemic. So uh, it's the like constant declining down. And the only time that I can think of that, that people like, that are probably listening to this unless they're quite a bit older, um, remember is after the dot-com. Because yeah, it's like 0102, right? Right. It's the 02 and stuff that like what people, the the crashing of it and whatever is okay. But it's the point at which you just got sick of things. Like we talk about like, you know, um, or a couple different companies, um, you know, when Domino's went public, when those things, like how could that have been and whatever. It's because that's only a few years after people are just like sick of any of that kind of stuff. They were not into IPOs. Like the best IPOs, right, came out a few years after that where no one was into that. Whereas the worst IPOs, of course, come out in the middle of like some growth market. And mm-hmm. so in the early 2000s, people were like, I don't want anything to do with all that growth stuff. I don't believe in that stuff anymore and whatever. Um, and we're really down on the stock market. But it's not like it happens instantaneously. It was just a really bad year. It's when you buy the dip or whatever, and then you lose more money, and then you do it the next year, and you lose more, and you do it like three times, and then you go, that's it. Um, you know, It's <laughs> not just like the- my screen. Well, we had the experience with the uh, starting our fund, right? We basically started our fund and, and COVID happened like the same time. I mean, we started yeah. January of, of 2020. So COVID was basically circulating from like the moment we started and, you know, the world shut down within like 90 days of us starting or something. So um, that all happened fast, right? But did the return to normal uh, people wanting to put money into stuff with us, the way people were thinking about investing stuff also happened fast? I, I would yeah. say it happened pretty quickly. Yeah. 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 I mean, in the middle of in April or whatever, let's say shortly after everything's bottomed and whatever, I don't think we would have said, oh, in a very short period of time, it will be people's attitudes will be a lot more like they were in January when we were starting up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that was, um, that was surprising the, to both of us. The world was incredibly changed. The economy was incredibly changed. Inflation. I mean, every real thing was changed. People's lives were changed incredibly, right? But um, attitudes about things changed fast. Now, here's the thing. I would say people's attitudes living through this whole last year have been affected in many ways as much as what what they were in COVID in terms of financial things because the market went down, right? And like it didn't keep going down at the same pace. But for a lot of people in their portfolios, it really didn't get better for very long during the year. They might've been flat sometimes, but they were not feeling like they were getting back towards where they had started the year. And so it was a grind for them throughout the year. Mm-hmm. And I think that may that has maybe changed some people's attitudes and interest rates and stuff like that too. But I just think they're, you're right in that the whatever happened during COVID did not feel like a sea change in people's attitudes. In some ways, some of it felt reminiscent of other stuff that happened with the Fed before and with stock markets before since the financial crisis, which is that when something like this happens, it's bad. It happens for a short period of time and it's really bad and whatever. But even if the real economy doesn't get back on its feet that fast, the stock market starts going up, rates will go to zero and there'll be emergency stuff and stocks will start going up immediately, right? And like you're used to a decade of stocks really doing pretty remarkably well considering what the underlying economy was like and everything. Um, And I feel like that coming out of COVID people readjusted back to that thinking fast. Um, I feel like people's financial lives went right back to where they were much faster than their real lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, which is that a testament to the Fed, basically flooding the system with liquidity so people felt comfortable to keep the movement of money going? Yeah, well, here's the interesting thing, right? Yes and no. 
So yes, they got it back on trend. But then given what happened with inflation, it turns out that it shouldn't have been put back on trend. Mm -hmm. That in essence, labor didn't come back on trend and everything. There were actual things in terms of supply, right? Um, that didn't get back. And so the, you know, this isn't a precise science and stuff, but basically putting the, they put a demand back on track as if the economy could bounce back right away. And of course, then there's a disconnect between Fed policy and fiscal policy and re uh, regulations and restrictions, right? And that's happened in a few countries now where, okay, let's do it like um, we'll be right back to where we were before, but then every other aspect of your life is not back to where it was before. And so we saw weird things like huge um, responses in financial things and huge responses in online stuff. Uh, and yet uh, not as big in other things, right? So it's like the thing I compare it to always is like World War II where everyone in the United States who was still in the country and stuff was employed and had making lots of income and all that, but they were severely restricted in spending because they couldn't, there was a housing shortage and stuff. They couldn't go out and buy housing and stuff because they weren't building that. They couldn't, um, literally the companies that were building cars and washing machines and all the things that they had been buying to spend all their money before the war was literally not happening anymore. Right? So mm. that's why that to this day is the biggest ever for like movies. People were literally going out to movies and to entertaining and to all that kind of stuff because they had a lot of money to burn and they literally were shut off for being able to spend it some places. You couldn't go to restaurants and people wouldn't go to like theme parks and places and around the world and stuff where you were worried that restrictions might change or travel might change while from the time you make your plan to then. So that's the thing that's really interesting because like these things with these online stuff, right? Is some of them kind of believed, oh, this is like, this, in fact, there was lots of articles. This accelerated the trend. So like we're on a different trajectory now, but this was always going to happen, but this is an acceleration. Like as if, you know, online shopping or something is not like um, heroin or something. The fact that you exposed a few more people to it doesn't mean that, you know, they're all now habitual users of it and they're not going to want to go back and do things in person in life, you know? Um, so it may have pulled things forward a lot, which is what probably did happen. But that means that just like when you pull demand forward for cars or for for houses or whatever, things revert back. And that's why I still think looking at the economy stuff, the thing that might I still think there's room for a shift that might surprise people in terms of real uh, offline economy stuff versus online economy stuff. Um, and definitely on the business spending side and stuff. That's the one that, like, I don't know if I could predict the stock market things, but the one I will stress is if you're selling to Google or Meta or whatever, I don't know how those particular stocks will do, you know, depend on the advertising thing and all that. But if you depend on providing services and um, goods and things to them, they're your customer, it will not be a good year for you because that's where we're going to see and are seeing, I think, real signs of a, serious slowdown in terms of their spending and cuts and things in that, in those tech related things that have been very free spenders for the last 10 years, they may even, you know, they're going to respond with a very different um, approach to all that in terms of their business. They're going to run their business differently. They're going to be a lot more lean on that and press people on that. So, um, you know, I, I just think I that kind of thing. Yeah. will be really different. Um, a lot of the other things it's harder to predict. Like when, you know, people ask about restaurant things or whatever, because it's a supply demand thing. There's still things where I don't know. I mean, I think this demand will be there for some stuff, but your margins may not be any better. And I know people don't believe that, but 
Um, so here's the thing. The margin compression, right? And the earnings decline in a recession is like always worse than analysts predict. Okay. So okay. even when they predict the recession, no one ever predict, I, you know, there's someone out there, some outlier who predicts it, but the consensus, the consensus prediction for what will happen in a recession is always less than actually happens. So like unemployment rises by more than the consensus predicts it would in a recession. Your model says this is what will be up in this recession. The one that's next about to happen, you're always wrong. Even if your model's right on average, normally you tweak it so that, you know, it says it's not going to be as bad for this one because you have other reasons why you think it won't be. So margins and stuff normally bottom out like in the actual recession. So your costs, which we've seen went up, but now you can price it so that it's okay. While it seems like, okay, your um, inflation coming down is really great for the market and everything. It's not so great for a company if economic stuff is slowing down and your costs have been going up, you know, that demand comes down now because a bunch of them have much higher costs in inventory, different companies, and their stocks have done okay in some cases because demand has been there. But when demand's really strong, it's easy to have really good numbers. You don't have to be that efficient and stuff. Where the cost stuff hurts you is the next time that we see poor demand, which for some industries won't coincide with the recession. It could be other stuff, but for lots of industries will coincide with the recession. So that's the unfortunate thing. You know, when we talk about these entertainment things, you know, Disney and whatever stuff. Yeah, your parks and things will look great when there's a lot of demand for it. But the next time that demand isn't so good, then we'll see how, what were the results of not having enough labor, not having enough, you know, if your costs went up, we'll see that more the next time the demand goes down. Got it. Cool. Well, that was uh, a great explanation and I think a great place to stop, Jeff. I thought this podcast had uh, the potential to be a 20 minute podcast. So I had a bunch of follow-up okay. questions, but here we are over two hours and I think it's a great place to wrap up 2022 and we will pull our predictions out next year. And I think it would be fun to do this indefinitely as long as we are still <laughs> doing the podcast and <laughs> see what our thoughts were on uh, the previous year and the predictions for the future when we get to hold ourselves accountable uh, which will be a lot of fun, especially when people are tweeting uh, my wrong predictions at me. So I would like everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself. Uh, if this is the first time you're joining us, um, we have almost five years. In February, we will come up on five years of recording and producing and putting out the Focus Compounding Podcast. Uh, I don't think when I started that... Um, either of us really thought that we'd be doing this for almost five years, but here we are. So having a lot of fun doing it. And the thing that makes it most fun is that individuals actually listen to it. It's not just the both of us yeah. uh, talking to the microphone, but I do think we both uh, started the podcast, not really caring if people listen or didn't listen. Uh, it was just topics that we were excited to talk about on the podcast. So I'll thank everybody so much for their support over the years. Pretty crazy five years uh, coming up on it. But I want to wish everybody a very happy holiday season. If you already celebrated a couple holidays, I uh, hope that went well. But uh, this is the final podcast to wrap up 2022. And we will see you all next week, per usual, uh, where we will be discussing financial topics. So I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself. 
and we will see you in 2023. Isn't that the most annoying pun? They're like, oh, see you next year. And it's like next week. So I want to thank everybody so much for the support. Enjoy the holiday. Enjoy New Year's. And we'll be back at it next week. Take care.